So, as you heard in the notices, the great news is on the 9th of June, we're having a baptism. <laughs> You're getting better. Um, it's fantastic. We love a good baptism. And uh, as we explained, we thought that we would um, go through a number of things over the next few weeks as we go towards baptism. Some aspects of the, of the baptism event um, that actually might explain for people what actually is going on. Um, so, we are following this little kind of mini-series based on this question, what must I do? And it was, it was inspired by the, the passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where people say to, uh, to Peter as he has a Pentecost sermon, what must we do in response to what you say? And these, this is his response. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for your, of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we're basing it on. We looked at repentance two weeks ago. Last week, Lisa looked at believe, which is another uh, event just later on in Acts where uh, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do? And they say, believe and be baptized. So we looked at belief, and this week, we're looking at this next one, which is about forgiveness. Now, if you know about uh, baptism and how we do it in the Baptist church, we, we do a dunking. We have the full immersion, is the polite way of saying it. Um, and what's really interesting is when you have visitors come, normally from schools, to look at what a Baptist church looks like. Uh, especially when they tell us, it's amazing, you've got a swimming pool at the front. <laughs> I don't know how small their swimming pools usually are. Um, and then they say, it's a bit like a bath. And yes, it is. And I'm not trying to steal Lisa's thunder when she does a bit more detail about what baptism is. But it is seen as a washing, a cleansing. It's a picture the water doesn't actually make you spiritually clean. It's what's been known as an outward sign of an inward reality. And so we come to this really key verse that we, that we read a bit earlier. If we confess our sins, and we talked about repentance and confession two weeks ago, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The creed the Apostles' Creed, has within it, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And if you do any of the creeds, if you've been habitually doing that in your churchmanship as you've grown up, you say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I wonder whether we do or not, to be honest. I'm not entirely sure we do. Because forgiveness, I think, is one of the most difficult, inexplicable, illogical, and unnatural concepts in the entirety of Christianity. And yet we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's much more to it than that. We need to know more. As we said two weeks ago, we looked at repentance. And a way I want us to look at it is repentance is like the door. It's the doorway into a room. And inside that room is forgiveness. Repentance is the doorway to forgiveness. We have to go through that door in order to receive it. That's what's waiting there. It's not like we ask God for forgiveness and then he sits back and goes, well, give me five minutes or mm, let me ask the audience or let me take 50-50. Um, we have forgiveness available whenever we come to that room. It is there for us if we walk through the door of repentance. It doesn't need God to have a think about it. Repentance is there. Or sorry, repentance is the doorway to forgiveness. So we need to reflect on what we term as the reality of forgiveness. The reality of of forgiveness. Now, many people, I include myself in this and maybe many of you guys as well, find it very difficult to accept God's forgiveness 
I don't know if you've experienced it, find it really hard to get our heads around it, to accept that God can really forgive us. I hear this from, from new Christians or people who are on the way. I just can't believe that God would forgive me. I've done too many bad things, or my bad things are really bad. How can God forgive me? It's not just new Christians or nearly new Christians. I think well-established Christians have sometimes in our heart of hearts got stuff that we think God could never have possibly forgiven me for that. Do you think it's so? I think so. How could God have forgiven me for that? Well, I think we need to accept and receive, and we need to accept it by faith. And so we turn to Scripture. You might want to note these down, or we can email them through. But these are, this is a, a Bible journey through Old Testament to New Testament, something about God's Word about the reality of forgiveness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. God is revealing to Moses who He is. He says, I, the Lord, the Lord. And He goes off, and part of the thing He says is, I forgive thousands upon thousands upon thousands. In His self-identification to Moses, He says, I am a forgiver. That's who I am. It's one of the most important characteristics of my existence. And then we move a bit further forward to 2 Chronicles. We've got it on the board there. If my people... Uh, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins. We go on to Psalm 103. We were just singing it a few moments ago. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God takes our sins from us. As far as the east is from the west, satnavs cannot understand that. It's too far. It's infinite. It's so far away, we cannot express it. That's what God does. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says about, Though your sins are like scarlet, blood red, they will be white as snow. I'll go back again. Then we have Jeremiah 31 and 34, where it says, God says, I will forgive you, and I will remember your sins no more. This is God. Are we starting to get a message? Let's go from Jeremiah into the New Testament. Jesus is there talking to people. He looks up. There's a crack in the roof. Four guys lower down their mitt. And they say, look, he can't walk. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Causes a bit of a kerfuffle. And loads of times Jesus does this. Then Acts chapter 2, that we started the whole thing off. Peter says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. It says, in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. And 1 John 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. And what will He do? He will? Excellent. Have you got the message? Our God is a God who says, I'm a forgiver. So when He says, you're forgiven, you really need to hear. Because that's what He says. It's in his character. It's in his nature. He says to every single one of you this very important fact. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Every single one of you, God speaks over you and says, you are forgiven. I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care what the devil says, what even you say about yourself. You are forgiven. Have you got the message? Do you know what the 9.15? Whenever I said that, someone said, hallelujah. I'm not comparing you. (laughs) 
But in a funny kind of way, I am. Because actually what was really weird is looking around their faces and looking around your faces, I won't embarrass you, but I can tell some people are going, wow, that's amazing. I'm forgiven. And some people are going, yeah, I've heard it before. And some people are going, no, there's not a chance. I can actually see your eyes telling me that. Let me tell you, categorically, one final time, you are forgiven. You're learning. We lose the wonder of this. You're forgiven. We may shirk our heads. Oh, I'll go back again because I've lost my place. See, that's why I'm so, we could finish up there, so I'll go home. No, listen, you are forgiven. These are truths that we need to accept and receive and believe when we say that we are forgiven. It's often very difficult, isn't it? Because it seems too easy. What you mean? I've got to say sorry to God and mean it. And if that's right, uh, and I say I don't want to live this way anymore, then I'm forgiven. Uh, yes. No, <laughs> I don't like that. I've got to do something else. Um, one of my kids the other day was just joking. Um, I promise you they were joking, I think. Um, I think that they were in, in youth and they maybe took someone's you know, hot chocolate or something like that. And they told me about this and I said, oh, well, God won't be happy about that. And they said, that's all right. He'll forgive us. It's what he does. <laughs> and they were joking, which is funny. However, what they didn't know is that they were actually quoting a French cynic. A French cynic writer who once wrote this, forgive my French, Le bon Dieu me pardonnera son métier. <laughs> Which says this, the good God will forgive me. That's his job. Or more appropriately, that's his speciality. It's what he does, he forgives. So it's okay to sin, because God's going to forgive me anyway. We may shirk and shake our heads at this, but I think too often, without admitting it or even noticing, that has been the basis of our confessions to God. I'm really sorry, God. He'll forgive me. It's what he does. I read this guy, Oswald Chambers. He's one of my favorite writers. I read him about one paragraph a month because that's about all I can take. He says this, Beware of the pleasant view of the fatherhood of God. God is so kind and loving that, of course, he will forgive us. That thought, based solely on emotion, cannot be found anywhere in the New Testament. The only basis on which God can forgive is the tremendous tragedy of the cross of Christ. To base our forgiveness on any other ground is unconscious blasphemy. You see, one paragraph a month, that's all I can do. If we base on anything but the cross of Christ... It's wrong because there is an enormous cost to forgiveness. An enormous cost of forgiveness. But we could easily say, well, why doesn't God just forgive? You know, he's kind of all-powerful, but surely he can say, all's forgiven. What's the need for this cross business, really? St. Anselm of the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury, said this in his work called Curdeus Homo. Curdeus Homo means why God became man. And he writes this. If anybody thinks God can simply forgive as we forgive, has not yet considered the seriousness of sin. He says literally the heavy weight of sin. God doesn't just brush sin under the carpet, whether we'd like him to or not. The question, is, the question isn't why does God, you know, how can God forgive? The question is how, how can he forgive at all? 
Not just why can't he just forgive us and spread it under the carpet, but how can he forgive a holy God, forgive our sinfulness at all? And so we come back to this really familiar verse. We know this, don't we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, I think how we read it is this. If we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because I think we miss out this important thing that he is faithful and he is just. Now, it's not just um, so that John's writing this and going, do you know God, you know, the one that is like this. He's not just pulling out two characteristics like, you know, do you remember um, you know, Seamus, the one with the green hair and the leather jacket? Not like that. He's actually saying this person, this God is faithful and he is just, and that's relevant to what I'm writing about. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive our sins. There's a reason behind these two words. God can't just say, never mind, all's forgiven, all's forgotten, don't worry about it, let's just move on, because that would be an affront to his holiness and his justice. It would be dismissive of both seriousness of sin and the reality of God's holiness. He can't just say that, and we get that, don't we? Because we are people of justice. Whether it's we're watching a movie and we're cheering on the hero or the heroine who has been um, vilely offended by the body, and at the end they teach the body a lesson and we go in our heart of hearts, yippee doo da, don't we? Maybe that's just me. <laughs> we have a real sense of justice, whether it's that or whether it's the discovery of systemic institutional abuse by people. Or human trafficking. Or even that you know, someone cheats on a game show. You can see by social media vitriol how we in, in, in our hearts demand justice. Unless it's for us. <laughs> then we're not so keen. Um, this kind of hit home relatively recently. As you know, we, we have the house next door. And that means we have some parking. It's been a blessing. <laughs> and it's been a bit of a curse, okay? Especially in the early days, we put up loads of signs saying, please, private parking, permit only, because we needed staff parking, we needed parking for food bank, for CAP, for visitors who were coming in, for, you know, all that kind of... We needed that, so people were just parking anyway, because, you know, they can't read. Uh, <laughs> So people were parking, and then um, Mick and I, who were the parking police, we'd often go out with our letter. Here we go. You have been served a letter, which is just a piece of paper um, with some you know, words on it. And uh, so that's fine. And then I, later on that day, I went to Harrogate to pick something up. And I parked my car up, and it was lovely. I think I knew where I was parking. And I was like three minutes late. And I could see from a distance that fated yellow sticker on the front of the car. And I went up and I tore it up. I was like, only three minutes. Oh, and then I remembered I did something really similar to someone just a few hours ago. Because we want justice, but not for us. Because that doesn't apply to us, does it? See, the thing is, the consequences of sin and rebellion against God, the holy creator of the universe, is death. The wages of sin is death. We know that. Have you ever thought why? Why is the consequence of sin and rebellion death? The way I want you to understand it is, um, have you ever had a blocked pipe? You have? Okay, that helps. Because 
Sin causes a blockage between us and God. It gets in the way. It, it destroys the connection between us and God. And if God is the creator and giver of life, if we are cut off from the source of life, what's the, what's the consequence of that? It's death. That's why the wages of sin are death. Because sin cuts us off from the source, the originator, the idea person behind life. That's why it's significantly serious. It's like a circuit being broken, a blockage in a pipe. We cannot access our relationship with God and therefore cannot access life in all its fullness. And the reason why God can forgive is not just because he's a nice guy, which is, I think, the basis of our theology sometimes. It's not just because he loves us. That's only part of it. The reason God can forgive us is because of his justice. He is faithful. That's his love and his mercy. But he is also just. One of my favorite songs is a song by Graham Kendrick. It comes out at Easter. It's called Come and See. Come and See the King of Love. And this is a line from that song. It says about, um, we worship at his feet where wrath and mercy meet. Where wrath about the seriousness and travesty of sin meets the faithfulness and mercy and love of God poured out in Jesus Christ. That's why the cross is important. It's where, it is the epicenter of where wrath of God and the mercy of God meet. And the next line says, and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. The ultimate example of God's holy love is the cross. His faithfulness and his justice, his love and his judgment are discovered at the cross. Watch this. Isn't that the most amazing parable that captures the one aspect of the mystery of the cross? God's justice, being satisfied with his love, 
Him paying the bill that we owe. At the cross of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, Emmanuel, God with us, in His death, love and justice entwine, and both are satisfied. His eternal love, His eternal justice, locust on the cross. We, humanity, are all guilty of sin. All of us have the consequence of sin over us. In Romans 3.23, it tells us that. It tells us in 1 John, as we read, if we say we haven't got sin, we're just liars or we're thick because we are sinners. We deceive ourselves. That's what it says. And then two things are said from the cross, that focal point of wrath and mercy. God, through Jesus, cries out, it is finished. It is finished. This is actually an accounting term. Cheer up for the accountants. (laughs) This means the account is closed. The debt has been paid. It is fully and utterly done. It is finished. What does Jesus say before it is finished? He says, Father, forgive them. And if you want to know why you can forgive them, because it is paid. It is finished. Forgive them. If we forget the cost of forgiveness, we lose the value of it, the power of it, and we are in danger of falling into something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where we dismissively think God will forgive us, it's what he does. Grace, remember, is costly for the giver, but free for the receiver. And it cost God the cross. That's why we need reminding in Scripture, in creeds, in the Lord's Prayer, in confessions, in songs, and in hymns, and in communion. We need to remember. We need reminding of that. And it's more than words, more than a creed, more than a song. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So we talk about the reality of forgiveness. Remember, you are forgiven, but let's not take that for granted. It came at a very, very steep cost. And if we are there, then we move from that to the experience of forgiveness. The experience of forgiveness. I want you to watch a story unfold as someone experiences forgiveness.
Isn't that beautiful? We use these videos at the Roots because, uh, the Roots Discipleship course, because of something about seeing the reality of these words, the wonder of the words in front of you. How beautiful. This woman, more than likely, reading between the lines, was a prostitute, or certainly had some kind of probably sexual sin, well known, clearly disgraced. And she comes in and falls at the feet of Jesus and cries over his feet, wipes it with her hair, anoints him with oil. This woman knows what it is to be forgiven. She knows what it was like to not be. She knows what it's like to be. And then there's Simon. Simon's the Pharisee who's, the guy who's religious, he knows how good he is. He knows that he's a Pharisee. He's reliant upon that and he's not honored Jesus. And Jesus points out, how much have you actually been forgiven? See, this woman pours out this extravagant worship to Jesus because she is forgiven. It isn't payment. It's a response of a lamb that is found, a child that's returned, a slate wiped clean, and a life that's been restored. And we can lose this wonder too easily. It's why it's important to hear the stories of people whose lives being transformed. I've been hearing some of those stories over the past year. I hope you have as well. People who are saying, if it wasn't for Jesus, this is where I would be. And it reminds you of the joy of your salvation. The fact that at one point you have been redeemed and it instills in you a passion and a joy of I have been forgiven. God forbid that we forget that. Because I think Simon the Pharisee had. He'd lost the wonder He hadn't appreciated the absolute holiness of God and also the severity of sin. His sin, small as it may have been, and the sin of the world. He hadn't appreciated what the cross was actually about, even though it hadn't by then happened. What it takes to make this relationship right, to bridge the gap, to restore the connection with God, to fix that relationship. And I think too often we can forget the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, and we cheapen the cross of Christ, and we forget the wonder and experience of being forgiven. 
So it took the cross because of his love, his mercy, because of his justice. God can forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Yeah, but a little thing. Jesus put a bit of a scupper on it. I'm sorry. He puts a bit of a scupper on this with one little word. Do you know what that word is? The word is as. Whoever thought this little word could cause so much trouble? But it really does. It scuppers the whole lovely picture of say you're sorry, Jesus paid the price, and you'll be all right again. A bit more nuanced than that because Jesus says this and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Who really wishes that Jesus hadn't done that second bit? Even worse, when he goes on and says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, then your Father will not forgive you. Who really wishes that someone had just tipexed that out? But it's there, and it's not the only place where we are called to forgive. It seems that we have contingent forgiveness. Now, that's a bit scary, isn't it? So I want to stress one really important thing. This is not an issue of salvation. This is not, you cannot be saved unless you forgive other people. Otherwise, you might as well put grace off the table because we have to earn our salvation. This is about the ongoing relationship with God. Notice where Jesus says this. It's within a pattern of prayer that he says for people to repeat regularly. Forgive us our sins and remind us that we need to forgive other people as well. These things are inextricably linked. This is the ongoing, regular, daily relationship with God that is being affected. And Jesus is a realist. He notices two things. He says, first of all, you will need forgiving regularly. Keep a short accounts with God. Not only that, but people are going to upset you, hurt you, damage you, abuse you. And you will need to remember to forgive them too. Jesus was a realist. If you want to know about this idea of forgiving other people, read a book. Mick uh, passed it on to me. It's called Total Forgiveness. It's by R.T. Kendall. Brilliant book. Not easy in some respects, but it's really worth looking at. And a couple of things to look at before we move on. It's that we talked about the reality of forgiveness. We talked about the, the cost of forgiveness and the experience of forgiveness. But my goodness, in this blockage, something needs sorting. Who's been at Kexgill of late? Who's wanted to get to Harrogate and you go up and you see A59 block 10 miles ahead? No, let's go around a 60-mile round trip to get to Harrogate because the road is blocked. Our relationship with God can be blocked by unforgiveness. Sometimes we say, have you ever, have you ever prayed to God and it just feels like a, a brick wall that you just don't see to be making any progress, that you, that you just can't? Get, yeah. And some helpful people come out and say, oh, you clearly got unforgiven sin. And you say, I've asked forgiveness for everything. I've got nothing else to ask forgiveness for apart from asking for forgiveness too much. How about unforgiveness that's lodged and hidden away in a safety deposit box inside a crate which is buried under the ground inside a warehouse which is actually covered by, by the sea? That there's a blockage that needs dealing with. There is the need of forgiveness. Matthew 18 talks about this parable of the unforgiving servant, where there's a servant who owes his master millions. Now, we're talking about kind of Wall Street crash millions. He owes his master. And what does his master say? Forget about it. The debt is canceled. That would have cost the master an awful lot of money. 
So the servant goes out and he meets one of his fellow servants who owes him a couple of quid. And he says, you owe me money. And he goes, I can't pay. And he says, right, to the debtor's prison with you, you scoundrel. He had not grasped the concept of forgiveness, that he was forgiven a lot. So you need to pass on that forgiveness. Now, the thought, appreciation, and acceptance of God's forgiveness may sound difficult, but then he throws this word, as you forgive others. And it seems that's intrinsically linked, and this is where it gets a bit messy, a bit untidy, and a bit where forgiving can be used in a glib term to cover everything, from someone bumping into you to mass genocide. You think, forgiveness will sort it. That's too glib. It must be more nuanced than that. We need to understand what forgiveness isn't. You may want to take notes of this or take a photo if you want. I don't know. But this is what forgiveness is not. And I think so often we think it is. Forgiveness is not approval of what's been done. It is not excusing the action that's been done, big or small. It is not justifying it and giving a rationale. It is not pardoning it and saying, never mind, there's no consequences. Sin often has knock-on effects and consequences. It's not pretending it never happened. It's also not denying that it has an ongoing influence and effect upon you. It is not forgetting. Forgive and forget. You've heard about it, yeah? It's not biblical. In fact, it's downright harmful. What God says, it's in Jeremiah, he says, I will forgive your sins, I will remember them no more. I will choose not to remember them. And 1 Corinthians says, I will keep no record of wrongs. I'll not keep on calling them back up. It's not forgive and forget. And it's certainly not belittling, which we're very good at. I'm really sorry for doing this to you. Oh, don't worry, it, it wasn't anything. And inside you are a seething mass of bitterness. Don't worry about it, it's fine. You're awfully British. It's not belittling it. Those, none of those things are, are forgiveness, but we often think they are, and that's what makes forgiveness so difficult sometimes. What forgiveness is, is taking all the realities of the hurt that has been done to us and not denying them, not approving of them, not justifying them, knowing what they are in their harsh reality, big or small, and choosing to forgive, choosing not to hold vengeance, choosing not to hold a grudge, choosing even to pray for the blessing of the person. This is hard. I know it is. And for some people, this is like rubbing salt into a wound. I appreciate that. But it's interesting. In 1998, John Templeton Foundation set up a research facility, 29 research posts looking into the area of forgiveness. And one of the key things that they find, one of the key findings in all their research about forgiveness is this. The prime beneficiary is the forgiver. The prime beneficiary of forgiveness is nearly always the forgiver. Because if anyone has done anything to you, they may not care a jot whether you are bitter, angry, twisted, damaged, or healed. They may not care. They may not care or ever know that they are forgiven, that they have been released, that you harbor no grudge against them, either because you never see them again, never contact them again, or they are dead. Forgiveness happens in your heart. We jump to the person coming and asking for it. That's not where forgiveness happens. It happens in our heart, and it is a choice. And it is a choice every single day to not be bound up by the bitterness that someone else has done. It's choosing not to keep resenting, re-feeling the hurt that someone did to you because you are actually damaging yourself. It's saying, I will not be defined by that. I will choose to forgive that person. 
every day a choice to forgive again and again and again. It is not easy, but thankfully we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And we have the expert forgiver who's been doing it from the very beginning of the universe. Forgiveness primarily releases you. God's forgiveness needs open arms to receive it. Often we can't if we're holding on to grudges and gripes and bitterness. Perhaps forgiveness is easy for you. Maybe the idea of forgiving the person or people who have betrayed you, hurt you, is just too much. Maybe you've heard this or said it, I just can't forgive them. Jesus says you can. Jesus says you have to. Not for their sake, but for yours. So that in 20 years' time, if someone comes knocking at your door and saying, I am really sorry, will you forgive me? You can say, I did it 20 years ago. And I've had 20 years without bitter, anger, or hurt at what you did. Because I am forgiven. I can forgive. And it's not just forgiving the person who's hurt you. It's also forgiving yourself. Forgiving yourself for the things you've done wrong. It's so it. Both of these are intrinsically linked to God's forgiveness of us. Simon Peter, and we're coming back just at the end to this, this first verse we came to. Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 38 onwards. Peter, a few chapters before in another book, he was saying to Jesus, I'm going the whole hog with you, God. I'm going with you all the way. If you die, I'm with you. And then he goes and sits by a fire, and a little girl comes up and says, you know Jesus. And he goes, no, I don't. He said another two times. Then he sees Jesus' face and knows that he has sinned. And he crumbles down and cries. After a restoration with Jesus on the lakeside, Peter is now on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he has been forgiven. He knows what he's talking about. How about we can tell people, you can be forgiven. Do you know why? Because I've been forgiven. I know the reality of it. I know the cost of it. I've experienced it. I know the need of it. I know you need that experience too. So the truth of it is, you are... I don't believe you. Amen. You are forgiven. And let me tell you, by the grace of God, you are forgiven. And by the grace of God, you can forgive. Amen? Amen. Amen. Dave, do you want to come on up?